Hello and welcome to Filmwalk. This is Glenn. I'm here with Daniel. Hello. And tonight we're going to be reviewing the new film, I cannot believe I'm saying this, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, starring Harrison Ford. But first, we're going to be checking out the new comedy from director Adele Lim, making her feature debut after uh, being the screenwriter of Crazy Rich Asians, and that film is called Joyride. Uh, you guys must be new to town, right? New to town, but not new to the country. We just moved from California. Oh, we just wondered uh, if you wouldn't mind if your, your daughter played with our daughter. Audrey, say hi. Mm-hmm. Slides off limits to Ching Chongs. <gasps> Fuck you. <laughs> Do you want to be best friends? Look at me, look at me, look at me now. Yeah. Guess who's going back to the motherland? It's a big deal, going to your birth country. We used to talk about it all the time when we were little, remember? Grand adventure to find your birth mother. So proud of you. <laughs> my translator in Beijing. Audrey, I got you. Cat <laughs> lives there now. Your famous college roommate. You ready to lose to a celebrity? <laughs> Deadeye is coming, by the way. Deadeye your cousin? Hey, Audrey. Oh, hi. Hey. Deadeye. Where did that come from? You know, I think I get it. I called the adoption agency and she lives in Haiching. Okay, will you guys come with me? Fuck yes, bitch. I love a grand adventure. That was from the trailer of Joyride, a new film from director Adele Lim, with screenplay by Cherry Chiva Pravat Damrong and Teresa Shao. And those two names may sound familiar to you. One of them in particular tends to stick with you, at least visually, because it is one of those just gloriously long Thai surnames. Uh, and she is a longtime uh, producer and writer for Seth MacFarlane's universe of shows. She's written for Family Guy, uh, has also written for The Orville. Uh, so I have a uh, I have a fair amount of respect for uh, screenwriting abilities and how they might have evolved over the years, especially after seeing this film here, because Family Guy is a show that, you know, we watched back in high school. We enjoyed 20 years ago, and it's somehow still just on the air. Seth MacFarlane, meanwhile, has expanded his uh, his repertoire a bit, and he's brought this uh, this broad stable of writers with him, and they're now off producing their own things to wildly variable res- uh, results here. So really did not know what to expect coming into this. I actually did not know these two writers were involved uh, going into this. I only knew about Adele Lim's uh, connection to Crazy Rich Asians, which I seem to recall we both enjoyed. And you recall incorrectly. I did not like that film. Oh, is that right? Okay. Fair enough. Uh, well, this film stars Ashley Park, uh, Sherry Cola, Stephanie Hsu. I believe she is the only one, the only actor we had any prior familiarity with um, from Everything Everywhere All at Once. And uh, we've also got Sabrina Wu. Now, these four actors play the core of this group of friends and uh, family and acquaintances who go on a road trip across Southeast Asia. The premise being that Audrey, who was uh, born in China but adopted and raised by a white American couple, uh, and her childhood friend Lolo, uh, played by Sherry Cola, who is, uh, I believe the phrase that is used for her is badass barnacle bitch from hell. Uh, She is a lewd sex-positive artist who kind of just does her own thing and is definitely the more kind of worldly and streetwise member of this this friend group. Uh, When we first meet Lolo, it's when she punches a racist young boy in the face, uh, on the playground, and uh, that, that's when the two of them decide to become best friends. Cat is uh, played by Stephanie Hsu, is a good girl actor who is living in China and is uh, the star of a period drama of some sort, where she's kind of the untouchable, pure princess type character. And 
In real life, she is following that very same ethos as well, uh, engaged as she is to her co-star Clarence. He is a virgin Christian actor, hunky fellow, and uh, he is saving himself for marriage. She, meanwhile, has a storied sexual past and uh, is uh, is not quite sure how to square that circle. And then finally, we have Deadeye. Deadeye has dead eyes. Uh, I mean, that's just putting it mildly. That's how they're introduced in the trailer. Um, Deadeye, who, uh, and, and I, for the sake of consistency, I'm going to use they, them pronouns with them because uh, that is what the actor Sabrina Wu uses, and that is also what the character uses by the end, but it's not really remarked upon in the movie. So uh, I tend to just go with whatever is uh, whatever is the last thing I have heard about a particular person. So yeah, Deadeye is in this movie, and uh, they are a very strange person. They are kind of the Zach Galifianakis of this group. Daniel, you referred to this as the hangover in Asia. Now, there was a hangover in Asia. I believe it was the second in that series already. But uh, would you say this film works better as a uh, as a comedy, works better uh, as a as a story, works for you on any level? I am curious what you thought of this film. Oh, you know me. I'm a Puritan's Puritan. So I, I would say that the comedy in this movie was a miss. But I like I like the friendship dynamic. Uh, well, with expand it, with, on that a little bit, because what kind of comedy was in this movie? Uh, just it, it's like raunchy sex comedy. And like, that's just not my bag. But what is my bag is tribalism, like nationalistic tribalism, like I find that very funny. So like when China's like jumping on other countries, that amused me. Uh, There's a really fun scene in this movie where they are first arriving at the airport in Beijing, I believe it is, and uh, Lolo, is, who has been to China before and speaks Chinese, Audrey meanwhile raised by white Americans, does not speak a word of Chinese except what she picked up on Duolingo. Uh, and Lolo is not only acting as a translator, but is also acting as sort of a cultural liaison for her, kind of explaining things to her. And as they're walking through the airport, it's kind of like that scene from a 90s high school movie where they're pointing out all the different cliques and uh, yeah. you know giving them, giving them different labels. Only these are different groups of people from different countries in Southeast Asia. So Lolo's engaging in stereotyping here, and some of that stereotyping turns out to be wrong within the same scene. Some of it is mildly racist. Some of it ends up having additional layers of irony by the end of the film. Um, I'm thinking particularly of one group of people that get misidentified in that scene. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, there's... That scene was delightful, and I chuckled heartily at it. There were pieces of this that I understood being uh, in a city with, with lots of Asian people in it, but there were also pieces of it where I'm just like, I've kind of got to take your word for this, um, slash you might be going for absurdity here. Ultimately, the character I ended up latching onto the most was Audrey, because uh, you know she <laughs> she's not only presented as a character who feels uh, like a cultural orphan of sorts, because she's been raised by white people and does not really feel connected to her, her to her Chinese roots, um, and also that's a source of both mockery and tension within her friend group. Um, but at the same time, it meant that. I was kind of in the same place as she was, you know, venturing into China with only the movies that have depicted China to sort of guide me. So I thought that piece of it worked really well. On top of the raunchy comedy, which, Daniel, you know, raunchy comedy tends to work well with me. Well, everything works well for you. That's why you have a film podcast. That is not, that is simply untrue. That's exactly true. Uh, I identify with Clarence, and for a second I thought you were going to say that, uh, um, Ashley Park, uh, Audrey was uh, raised by wolves. <laughs> I thought that's what you're gonna go with, as opposed to by white people uh, from a, a fictional part of Seattle. I, I forget the name of the town, but uh, the town was called White Hills. White Hills. So I'm thinking Queen Anne. It was probably the Queen Anne neighborhood. Yeah, just about. I mean, it was clearly not shot in Seattle. I mean, at one point, we see a snippet of SeaTac Airport, and I'm like ten, two seconds there, I'm like, that's not SeaTac Airport. Hey, that is an airport. Everyone in the crowd cheered. Because we love the three-hour queues at the TSA line. 
we love SeaTac. So the reason why they are traveling to China in the first place is because Audrey has a business connection there uh, for her law firm. They are attempting to get into some sort of unspecified business with a CEO dude, Chow, played by Ronnie Cheng. Uh, Ronnie Cheng, second CEO that I've seen him play this year. Uh, he was also in the movie Megan uh, back in January. And uh, this guy is just a great, obnoxious asshole. You know, we know him from The Daily Show, where he played a great, obnoxious asshole news correspondent. And he's now branching out into comedy, where he's playing just an obnoxious asshole, but a comedian. Um, always a pleasure to see him, but that was like just the right amount of Ronnie Chang. Um, and. Uh, but the business is kind of, I mean, the fact that they don't even bother to elaborate on what the business is, it's just we need to get this contract signed so that we are in, in doing the business together. We hear from her boss, who is uh, sort of the consummate white male ally. That guy's, that guy's attempts to square the circle but, uh, between, uh, you know, ri- uh, like riding his employee and uh, hollering at her to get it done and also being a good ally to, to the single Asian American who works for his firm. That was very, very funny. Hey, he went um, through a DEI course. He understands what the game is. So he's, he's playing it to, to the best of his ability. Um, and I dare say watching two Asian-American writers from uh, from Family Guy, which has a white dude executive producer and uber boss Seth MacFarlane, it's, it's hard not to imagine that this is not a heightened version of some experience that they have had as well. Um, so... Minus the whole getting fired thing. As far as I know, they're all still uh, they're all still tight. But we've also got uh, so we've also got this drama where she doesn't know who her birth mother is, and that becomes weirdly important to CEO guy Chow at the at the very beginning. And uh, so separately from this, Lolo has put out some feelers and found out some information about her birth mom in this nearby town in China. So they decide to go looking for her birth mom because it becomes necessary to close this business deal to present herself as sort of a family person. I'll be honest with you, Daniel. I kind of thought this was bullshit, (laughs) um, even as I was watching it. But before I even had time to process that, they get on the train. They uh, they immediately pass over a couple of uh, a couple of Chinese families, and Audrey immediately gets into the car with a lone white person on the train, who is a super. And this is the first time I've heard this word used in a movie. Sus, uh, drug dealer type, played by Meredith Hagner, uh, who I know from Search Party in Palm Springs. She's delightful. Uh, You know what? When you're on, you're in a foreign country. And you see someone familiar to you, you naturally gravitate towards that person. I mean, I played beer pong with some Marines in St. Petersburg. Uh, they won. It turns out they're good at every kind of fighting. But um, but yeah, no, it's it, it, it's it. I understood what she was doing there, but the movie definitely takes her to task for it. And by the end of that scene, they're shoving vast quantities of drugs just up their butts and into their vaginas. Yeah, and, it was super uh, duper funny. Yeah. Like an amount that would, well, here's what that scene did for me, yeah. Daniel. Well, it, was it made you laugh. I know, I saw it. It made me year. laugh a lot. Um, but it also very clearly and immediately established what the tone of this movie was going to be, which was, we're just going to jump directly into the next bit of comic ridiculousness, and we're not going to worry too much about realism here. I mean, they were putting enough to to, to kill an endangered rhino into each of their holes, and uh, and they were they were getting it done, because this is not the movie where you die of a massive overdose. This is the movie where you move on to the next scene, you holler at each other a little bit, and then you immediately get picked up by a bus full of hunky basketball players, so we can move on to the next comedic set piece, which is uh, all of them attempting to get laid in various ways. Well, right, so, because we, we've determined that drugs make you horny, and that when a bag of cocaine bursts in your anus, you're instantly horny and no other feeling. 
Listen, it's all about how well they sell that feeling. And, uh, you know, in the same way as they were doing Thousand Year Egg shots, which, by the way, Thousand Year Eggs are a thing I've heard of. I've never heard of them being used for shots. It just feels extravagant to me. But, um, you know, there's a slapping game in that club. They're vomiting all over each other. The jokes come fast and furious. The the slapping game I could get behind because that does sound fun. So... Daniel, I don't want to just go through a list of all the jokes in this movie. You should, because... Bottom bottom line, this movie goes from one set piece to another, and I found most of them funny. And ultimately, that is why I recommend this movie. It is a raunchy, raucous good time for me, personally. Um, Was there any joke in this movie that did work for you? And if the jokes didn't work for you, was there anything else that worked for you? Hey, I already said, I I laughed at, like, all the the jokes about other groups of people. One thing that always entertains me is just a constant reminder that everybody hates everybody else. And that amuses me because it's true. (laughs) Americans make fun of everybody. Canadians make fun of Americans. Chinese people hate Japanese people. Japanese people hate Koreans. Koreans hate Japanese people. It's a wonderful cycle of hate. And it's always nice when a movie reminds you of that. I mean, one of the things that is fundamental to the American identity is being really, really fucking sanctimonious about racism. Like, we definitely make a conscious effort. I say this on fucking Juneteenth as we're recording this, uh, you know, eight full days before we even see Indiana Jones. But we definitely make an angry attempt every so often to grapple with racism. It's something we have yet to uh, seriously address as a country, and yet we keep sort of sort of heading in that direction. And I have to believe those sorts of ideas exist in other countries too. They are just le- they they just bloviate a bit less about it than we. Well, they, they had they, they've had different experiences. Well, I also just think that the perception of racism and anti-racism has to exist in some form in these countries because these are not uniquely American ideas. That's all I'm giving these people credit for. Racism also definitely exists in every country that we see here. Exactly. And I think as long as we come to terms with that, that's good. Now, to answer, circle back to your original question, I thought thought the dynamics of the relationships between the four uh, primary castmates, uh, that worked for me. Uh, I did not care about the whole missing mother aspect because for a movie this raunchy and this dedicated to ridiculousness and, and comedic bits, to try to tack on something super serious just felt out of place because all of a sudden we pivot to, oh, now we have to be serious and now the character's actually bothered by something when like they've been behaving erratically and, and ridiculously the entire film. So it's, it's hard for me in those moments to, to buy that authenticity because it feels hollow. So I'm going to half disagree with you here because I think you are spot on when you say that the the dynamic within this friend group and between each of them worked pretty well. All right, it sounds like we're in agreement on that. Yeah, I liked how all the characters uh, related with each other, grew together, uh, and, and also like weren't just besties from the get go. Like, but had to come to pass through their journey, right? Because um, you know, Lolo and Cat uh, do not like each other at the beginning, and they their bond grows kind of naturally through their experiences together. So that was good to see that. I I, I appreciated that journey. So Audrey and Lolo have been friends since the beginning, but they are clearly sort of drifting apart and on different paths at the beginning of this film. So we have an established friendship that is somewhat at a moment of crisis here, both because uh, they're they're kind of venturing on a different paths. I mean, Audrey is 
considering taking a job, which will take her out of out of White Hills and move to Los Angeles. Um, so she'd be leaving her friend behind in that in that scenario. And that tension is what's hanging over their friendship throughout this, because of course, they've not had this conversation yet. And this being a movie, you know, they're going to at some point. So their friendship, I dare say, transforms and deepens over the course of this film as well, because they go through some shit, and also they are forced to confront some things that they'd kind of gotten blasé about over the course over the course of their friendship. They'd gotten a little comfortable with each other, and they'd let things fester, and all of that gets addressed in the course of this very, very funny film as well. So, and I know you don't agree on the very funny part, but here we are. I like, I like it, like. So we have a few coherent emotional dynamics going on here, and then we've also got Deadeye, who's kind of just there to inject chaos and do everything. Yeah, that's what Deadeye was there for. And, and, and to be to be fair, Sabrina Wu does a great job with that. Yeah, it is an absolutely ridiculous, goofy character, and I thought they did an amazing job as well. Um, but also, you know, there is an emotional through line there as well, because ultimately this is somebody who wants to be accepted, wants to have friends, wants to be part of the group, and conveys that in some way. And they're actually, uh, I think, supposed to be Kat's cousin or Audrey's cousin, somebody? They're Lolo's cousin. That's right. So we have a couple of coherent emotional arcs that deepen and pay off over the course of this film, and we have coherent comedic timing that I think works really well over the course of the film. Just the banter amongst this group works really well. So Daniel, I guess what I would say is, I don't know how you can go from that to suddenly having a dramatic moment involving one or more of these characters. And I'm going to keep this vague because we don't want to get into spoilers here unless we decide to actually do a spoiler section for this. But I thought the dramatic beats at the end of the film, while they were definitely... I can see describing them as tonally jarring, but that was not what I was feeling in the moment. Well, you were what I was feeling in the moment was, okay, she's sad about something here. She's sad about something comprehensible here, and we're still learning something nice about this friend group. We're still like we're still we're still paying off the previous emotional beats here. It didn't just come out of nowhere. So obviously that emotional beat landed with me. If you looked over at me while it was happening, you could see that it was landing. Oh yeah, I mean you you were emotional. That's fine, and you're welcome to be emotional. I'm not making fun of you for that. I you literally were just a moment ago, but fair enough. I was just saying things into a microphone. Well, I guess I would just say that I I was surprised that that emotional beat landed for me because you are right that it does jump from a comedic beat to an emotional beat and then back to comedy land again. But I think the movie had established a sufficiently madcap sort of tone jumping from one scene to the next while also maintaining this sort of emotional through line from one scene to the next that it it worked for me. That's all I'm going to say. I mean, to say that a raunchy sex comedy made me cry, I'm surprised. And that's also the sort of thing that I am always delighted by when I go to see a movie. If a movie can manage to pull off a weird tonal dance in a way that lands with me, like this movie did, I am always pleased with that result. I think maybe I'm a little bit more cynical than you uh, in that moment to, to where I was thinking, oh, now the movie has to be serious for like five minutes and then we'll go back to silliness. Do we want to talk about the actual moment here? Because we can do a quick spoiler section here if you want. Hey, it's up to you. It's up to you. I guess this is your podcast. I'm merely a passenger. Well, here's what I would say. If you are interested in a raucous uh, road trip comedy that is not part of any existing franchise and is one of the few sort of non, non-series, non non-big studio films, granted this is being released by a big studio, uh, that is available at the, the- at the theater right now, this is one to check out. Um, I had a raucously good time watching this. Daniel, at least sounds like you had some, you found something appealing about this. I uh, didn't hate it. I, you know, here's the thing for me, sex should be banned and that you, you, (laughs) it should be illegal. You should have to get up, you know, uh, uh, you should petition the government when you're ready to have sex. They should give you a pass 
and then you're allowed to have sex. This whole like sex positive culture just frankly is very uncomfortable for me and I don't like it. And I, I think Lolo was, if I met someone like Lolo in real life, I would think you need therapy. And also why is your entire personality based around one thing? Like have some layers. Like ex- she described her artistic approach to sex as being a desire to demystify it, Daniel. Which I think means that no, you we are need to mystify it. We, we need more mist. There needs to be more mist. We need a, a perpetual, impenetrable fog. So it's like in a video game before you reach that part of the map, and it's just sort of misty. That's that's what sex needs to be at all times. Yes, because like I don't need to see people's bits, alright? I'm sorry. It's not, not appealing to me. Well, okay, so this gets revealed pretty early on, but Kat has a pussy tattoo? Yeah. I'm using oh, her phrasing here. And uh, boy, the crowd loved that. Well, and her Christian boyfriend has never seen her naked before. Well, right, he shouldn't sex so that immediately creates tension because you're just like that's that's already gonna be an awkward wedding night but imagine seeing your naked bride for the first time and all of a sudden she's got a pussy tattoo and i i won't say what the specific nature of the pussy tattoo was but suffice to say it paid off that tension rather well um I don't know. I was I was immediately on board with that. Well, the, of course the idea you of were. That now, moment happening was so funny to me that it didn't even need to happen in this movie for it to, for it to land. As soon as they introduced the concept of that, I was like, "Oh, that tension is sitting right over us here." I will say, I, I was a big Clarence fan. I felt like the romance of the Three Kingdoms uh, TV show that he was on was is more, that what it was? I mean, it. it I'm using a reference to a specific period piece, but that a princess in a night, that type of period piece is what it was. Um, that was more appealing to me than the movie itself, but that's because I am an old soul and I like old things. I will say Clarence though. I feel bad for Clarence and he could do better. He could do better than cat. He's a good looking dude. And he's the lead actor on a TV show. He can probably, uh, he probably has options. That's all I'm going to say, but he's clearly with somebody he wants to be with. So. He's a very handsome fella. Well, I guess Daniel, let's go ahead and do a quick spoiler section here. Cause I want to, I want to talk about this, mo- this emotional beat at the end here, but, uh, but I, I'm going to go ahead and say, go out and check out this movie as, as soon as possible with the biggest crowd that you can. It was a hilarious, good time at the movies and I cannot recommend it enough. It was a time at the movies. All right, from here on out, spoilers for Joyride. So something very funny about the idea of Clarence, the Christian fiance, she comes clean to him at the end by voicemail, apparently a three hour long voicemail, which is one of those comedic details that I'm just like, voicemails are not allowed to be that long, but whatever. Right. She laid out her entire sordid sexual past to her uh, to her fiance, and he did what Christians do, which is forgive her for being herself. And, no, that's uh, not, that's not what her, Christians that's do. That's not what Christians do. He should have moved on to somebody else. I'm sorry, a pussy tattoo is like a face tattoo for me. Like I, I, I can't not judge you harshly for that. <laughs> you don't still find it funny to consider the physical reality of the two of them having wedding night sex and him having to put his dick in the devil's mouth. No, I I don't, I don't, I, 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 
Uh, maybe when I was 14, I would have found that funny, but... I appreciate the amount of visual effects budget they had to expend to depict that tattoo. Uh, I mean, it was a mix of something happening on the outside and then an interior shot, like POV shot from inside her vagina, uh, showing that the, the details of the tattoo, inclu- like the horns, were somehow on the inside. Yeah, it's just... Ugh. Okay, fine. Like, I get... Like, you wrote for Family Guy, I get it. Like, that's a Family Guy joke. Fair. It's a Family Guy joke that couldn't be shown on Fox, so they needed an R-rated movie to be able to do this. Let's talk about the emotional beat. And that is where she goes to Korea because she finds out she is, in fact, Korean and that her birth mother, she was born in China, but she was born to a Korean mother in China whose parents sent her away uh, when she became pregnant as a teenager. And we learn that her mother, Min Park, died just a few years ago at the age of 40. Uh, so she was young and she was she was sick with some unspecified ailment. And we learn all of this from Daniel Day Kim from Lost. Uh, I did not catch his actual name, and he is not her birth father. He is her late mother's husband for a few years near her death. And he's a very nice man, I'll just say that. And we find out later that he is there because her friends arranged for him to be there, which is a little bit of a hand-wavy emotional conclusion there. They somehow tracked this guy down and told him to go to the graveyard and run into her. Yeah, but, the precise he, moment, yeah. But the, the hand-wavy stuff with the with the bus showing up in the middle of the mountains earlier. So right, fine. I mean, it, it, it was in keeping with the reality they had set up here in the film. I didn't really mind that plausibility-wise. But what we got was... Uh, her late mother recorded a message for her hypothetical future daughter in the hopes that she might eventually see it. Um, and Daniel, this message made me cry. And uh, that part of that was Ashley Park's performance, reacting to this, reacting to the reality of this moment. Part of this was just what a sweet and heartfelt thing it was and how it paid off this whole connection to an identity that she didn't even know that she was missing. Um, you know, it really felt like it was paying off for that character in, in in a huge way, and also that every every positive feeling that she was experiencing in that moment, she was ultimately like, hey, the only per- the only people that I've got to thank for this are the man standing here next to me who showed me this video and my friends who, ma- who facilitated this interaction. So, yeah, I don't know, dude. It worked for me. It was such a sweet and sad and beautiful moment. It was a nice moment. The last thing that I expected in a movie like this. It was a nice moment that felt totally jarring coming from everything else fair if that is how it if that's how it felt for you i can't argue with that i, can I, I don't know dude as as your as your child grows up and becomes more of a person i think you are going to become more susceptible to these kinds of parent child uh emotional beats in the same way that i have become you you are gonna get sappy as fuck and i'm looking forward to it. first off now that you've said you you, I, you have to understand we've known each other for what 20 25 years at this point i believe so yeah you know I run on spite, right? That was that got, that is the primary driving force in my life is spite. The fact that you said me now I'm gonna become a real sap sappy sucker for for you know uh, father daughter stuff. Now I'm gonna be the opposite, just to spite you. So thanks for sending me up for that. I don't believe it. You're not gonna be able to manage it. It's impossible, dude. Cynicism I do, I do like I do like childlike innocence. I, I do like rocking your sleep. That's my favorite thing. I saw the uh, t-shirt combo that you and your daughter were wearing earlier, and you giggling as she slapped you in the face while you were taking that picture. You are already a sap, and you don't even know it yet. Yeah, I love my daughter. What what does it have to do with this raunchy sex comedy? Uh, at some point, she might enjoy r-rated comedies as well you might have to watch one with her and she'll be horrified by that reality if it happens 
I mean, it's fine. Uh, she, she'll have to wait 18 years. So uh, I got time. I got time. It's physically impossible for anybody to watch an R-rated movie before the age of 17. Well, in my household, absolutely. When was your first R-rated movie, Daniel? And what was it? Oh, I, I don't remember. It was, it was probably when I was in middle school. Uh, mine was definitely also in... Actually, no, I was I was 10. It was a sleepover while I was still in elementary school at uh, P. Raj's house, and we watched The Terminator. Mm. I believe that was also my first cinematic boob that I ever saw, so that was uh, that was a real formative experience for me. Um, I re- real violent, that movie. I remember watching uh, the original It uh, with... Uh with uh, Tim Curry? Yeah, with Tim Curry. Um, like it was on TV. I was young. Yeah. I, I remember that. I remember that scaring the crap out of me. I mean, it's TV scaring the crap out of you, but fair enough. I mean, there were commercial breaks, but like, the clown was scary. Well, if we're talking sex comedies here, I mean, we're taking it back to the uh, the turn of the millennium animated world as well. I do remember seeing the South Park movie in theaters, which I was definitely too young to see at the time. So uh, I, I had an older brother, and he occasionally helped me out with things like that. So... All right, well, Daniel, uh, any final thoughts about the film or about the ending? Look, I've been dumping on it the whole time because that, that's what I do on this podcast. Uh, I will say I enjoyed the film. I really like the character dynamics. It really it felt like it was setting up a series. Oh, most definitely. Yeah, at the end of the, the film, they, they have their next adventure in Paris. And they said, hey, every year we're going to get together. We're going to share our successes. We're going to commiserate over our failures as a group because we love each other and we're, we're, we're a team. And I thought that was nice. It's definitely something that's very sweet. The raunchy stuff doesn't work for me because sex is not my my sense of humor. But I, I enjoyed the film. I thought the, the plot was well laid out. I thought that the uh, the comedy beats were were timed well. They were presented well, and the, and the characters uh, did a good job with operating in this world of chaos in a way that still felt a little bit somewhat tied down to reality, even though it definitely wasn't. I like the film. I think it's worth seeing if, if anyone enjoys uh, movies like a hangover or uh, some of those early two thousands, you know, sex comedies. Yeah, it really, uh, I mean that, that sex comedy vibe is not, I mean, there's, there is another one in theaters right now, uh, no hard feelings that just came out. And I am, uh, and I'm mildly curious to check that one out at this point, just because, uh, Oscar winner, Jennifer Lawrence is in it. And I have to believe that there was something about that script that spoke to her that made her want to make that movie at this point in her career. Um, but yeah, I, I think that, um, Ultimately, when we saw them all together in Paris at the end, it was not the idea of them roaming around Paris that did it for me. It was the idea of them roaming around that did it for me. Uh, this group worked for me in a big way. Like They immediately distinctively established themselves as characters. The intergroup dynamics were interesting, and I would, you know, it, it's in much the same way as The Hangover. There's clearly a studio pitch here of... We can make these mid-budget comedies every couple of years, and they will. And if they do good business, they will. They'll make you know thirty or forty million dollars each one. You can keep making them. Um, that's exactly what the Hangover movies were. Of course, I think they did hundreds of millions of dollars in business at the time. I think they're kind of hoping to capture that that gold again uh, in a way that few uh, sex comedies or road trip comedies have done since. So they're they're going into an uphill battle here, but they definitely set themselves up for success here with this group, uh, is all I'm going to say. Because I was immediately like, I want to see these people again. So, okay. Uh, f- fair enough. Question for you. Which of the four are going to be the breakout star coming from this film? So of the four, the only one that I had any prior familiarity with was Stephanie Hsu. So it could really be any of them. I I mean, I, I could make some crass guesses based on 
conventional attractiveness in the uh, in the movie world. But uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Sherry Cola as Lolo was probably my favorite of the whole, of the whole group. I thought she was the most consistently funny. Um, I could definitely see her doing uh, doing more. So, I, I can see, see so uh, like uh, Aqua thing. I got like a like TV deals after becoming a movie star. I can see Sherry Cola getting TV deals. Uh, one of the screenwriters of this movie, I actually saw when I was uh, when I was looking them up, uh, is also from Seth MacFarlane's uh, stable of writers. But uh, was also uh, Stephanie Show was the co-create. Stephanie, er, ah, that's not right. Teresa Shaw was the co-creator of Aquafina as Nora from Queens, which is Aquafina's TV show. So uh, it's definitely it's it's not only uh, plausible that this person that Sherry Cole could end up getting her own TV show. She's clearly got an in having been in this movie. So that's something at least. Um, Sherry Cole was on a Freeform show as well, which means we're too old to know who she is prior to this movie. But uh, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, I, I definitely wish her a, a successful career here because she's very funny. All right, well, uh, that's all I got. Daniel, any final thoughts? You know, I'm happy to go see films again with uh, with you in the theater. It was a nice experience. I, uh, I'm looking forward to more films and more reviews, and maybe maybe I could get my Victorian romance period piece soon, you know, with ballroom dances and people exchanging letters that, you know, hint at, you know, flirtation, but, like, nobody says anything ever explicitly about sex. That'd be nice. Any oh. day now, sure. Oh God! You know those, mov- you know those, th- those literature period pieces were definitely all about longing, which was, which is ultimately all about sex. Yeah, right? yeah. But but that's the thing. It's the longing is what they talk about. It's not the sex part. There's no pussy tattoos. There's no explicit depictions of sex acts. It's the longing. It's the anticipation. That's that's what's important. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our discussion of Joyride. If you have any, ah. That brings us to the end of our discussion of Joyride. If you have any feedback, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com. And now on to our review of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I'm retiring. Well, in that case, what are we drinking? Same for the goddaughter. Dad told me you found something on a train during the war. A dial that could change the course of history. Why are you chasing the thing that drove your father crazy? Don't move. I need to get out of here. Stop! Sorry. Helena! Dr. Jones, get him. Hitler made mistakes, and with this, I will correct them all. You stole it. Then you stole it. And then I stole it. It's called capitalism. That was from the trailer of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, the new and allegedly final film in the Indiana Jones saga, directed by James Mangold, starring Harrison Ford, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, and for about five minutes, Antonio Banderas. Daniel, this film... It comes 15 years after Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which uh, I believe you confided to me in the theater. You are not sure you actually watched. Is that right? I don't believe I saw it, no. 
Let me catch you up on Crystal Skull. Uh, they reconvened in 1957. They fought communists. Indy has a son named Mutt Williams, played by Shia LaBeouf, whom we learn at the beginning of this film is dead. And he reconciles with his, uh, with his at that time, ex-wife, or rather, ex-girlfriend, who he ends up reconciling with and then marrying, Marion Ravenwood, played by Karen Allen, who assisted in finding the Ark of the Covenant back during the events of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay, that's where she's from. Oh, also aliens exist. Um, that's not a super relevant detail to this film, but aliens exist is kind of the big reveal at the end of the uh, last one, so I just wanted to be totally clear on that. The Crystal Skull is that of an alien. Now, that said, I've not f- seen Crystal Skull since it came out, uh, when I saw it in theaters in 2008, and I kind of figured it was not going to be required viewing for this film, because we we kind of knew what to expect here. This is a legacy sequel. We've seen a lot of these lately where the actor who played the character a long time ago comes back for one last hurrah. And we've even seen this once before with Harrison Ford, twice before with Harrison Ford, if we count Blade Runner. And, uh, I don't know about you, Daniel, but Star Wars, the force awakens, uh, Harrison Ford's return as Han Solo in that film is actually was actually something I rather enjoyed. And that was one reason why I was slightly optimistic about this film. The other is James Mangold, who has at least made movies that I find interesting as a general rule. So this film, uh, and, and uh, also that was even before I knew that Phoebe Waller-Bridge, uh, the English actor who also created and starred in the show Fleabag, uh, which is an absolute masterpiece on Prime Video, uh, that was even before I knew that she was going to be in the film as the uh, as the co-lead as uh, Indiana Jones's goddaughter Helena Shaw. So, Daniel, we kick off this movie in 1944. The Nazis are on the run. D-Day has happened. They are plundering artifacts and escaping on a train. And young Indiana Jones, as played by a deep-faked homunculus. Uh, presumably embodied at some point on set by the actual Harrison Ford, who is 80 years old now, as evidenced by every time that character opens his mouth and speaks when he sounds like an 80-year-old man, and uh, instantly breaking the spell and revealing the fairly decent quality CGI on this uh, on this de-aged Harrison Ford to be exactly what it is, the false reality that we knew we were watching for every minute of that sequence. And that sequence ends, and at a certain point we're in 1969, and we get to see Harrison Ford playing his actual age, and by that, of course, I mean his actual age minus 10 years, because, uh, I don't know if you knew this, Daniel, but Indiana Jones, the character, was born in 1899, which means that Harrison Ford is playing a version of himself that is only 70 in this film. So, he does spend most of the movie at least somewhat acknowledging his age, at least somewhat acknowledging the fact that it's a bit weird that he's still doing all of this, at least somewhat acknowledging that he shouldn't be hanging on this wall with his sore shoulders and his busted knees doing any of this shit anymore. So, Daniel, what I have what I have to ask you is, did he give us a good reason why he chose to do it anyway? I guess. I, I guess the, uh, the issue I had was he seemed, I mean, obviously Harrison Ford is a lot older than the character he's portraying. I was kind of hoping they'd lean more into the, I can't physically do this stuff anymore, but like, I don't know, having him actually fail at doing those things as opposed to doing all those things as well as he normally did. Like when he was in 1944 and, and quite a bit younger, it, it doesn't work if you say I'm too old to do this job and then you do the job without any issues. <laughs> like, well, I don't know. I mean, Mel Gibson and Danny Glover uh, spent several, spent an entire series of cop movies doing exactly that. But, yeah, yeah, but I, I hear you on that point. They were also not in their, they're in their eighth decade on this earth. So 
you know, it'd be nice, like, he swings and punches somebody in the face, and they just lang him up. Like, they don't instantly go unconscious, right? Or he tries to drive a vehicle, and you know what? His hand-eye coordination isn't as good anymore. So he crashes the car, and he has to rely on Helena Shaw to do more of the work. That I would have enjoyed. I would have been interested in that story. And that's not really the story we get. I go into these movies cold, always, because I think that's the best way to, to view one of these films. So I didn't know anything about what was going to happen. So when, I, when we had the 1944 sequence, I was like, oh, good, we're getting the whole Nazi thing out of our system. And then, I don't know, maybe he's going to fight some beatniks, you know, in the 60s. Like, that would be fun. Like, these hippies want to have access to this magical device, and I'm all for crotchety, you know, get off my long Harrison Ford saying, no, no, kids. None of your woke archaeology. <laughs> I'm going to take this device because I know what's best. I mean, the closest we get to that is a moment where uh, where Helena refers to Indiana Jones and her late father, Basil Shaw, as grave robbers. And the closest that he gets to responding to that is, hey, your father and I did important work. And that's about the extent of it. But I can almost hand wave that away because this is his goddaughter. They knew each other at least until she was 12. And it's possible that she's heard Gramps tell these same stories around the table as well, which is why I can also hand wave away when he says, uh, you know, I drank the blood of Kalima and uh, and found a crystal skull, or whatever references to the previous movies that he that he made in dialogue here that she just kind of shrugged off because that's an insane thing to say to somebody if they don't know what you're talking about already. But these two have a prior relationship, so I just believe Indy's been telling these same fucking stories for 30 years, and and she's just kind of rolling her eyes like, okay, whatever, granddad. Uh, let's, let's just keep on moving here. We have have Mods Mickelson playing Jürgen Voller, who is uh, basically Werner von Braun. He's uh, he's helped the Americans post-war with developing their rocket program and flying to the moon. But it was all just so he could gain the clout to engage in his evil Nazi shenanigans, uh, which he does in this film. And we also see a de-aged Mods Mikkelsen uh, in 1944 as well. I don't have a ton to say about that, except that Mods Mikkelsen kind of looks perpetually 45, so that sort of works... Even I mean, I don't know if it was a combination of de-aging and makeup going on there, but uh, he he seemed fine. Um, I don't I don't he, understand. So he was he was on the train at the end, right? And he's like, he "Give me the device," uh, and then he gets knocked off the train, and then he's perfectly fine the next time we what, see him. What happened to him in that scene was not survivable. <laughs> so right? I don't. And they don't even show him like fucked up a little bit or with a scar on his face. They just kind of have him there. Like, I'm surprised he even remembers anything that happened on the top of that train. But they just kind of hand wave away him surviving. Yeah, I I was confused at at first when he reappears. I was like, is that the same guy? Like, it's clearly the same same guy. guy. But only because he's got a very unmistakable face and voice. Like, but even so, going back to Harrison Ford playing a character that that is younger than his actual age, I, I can deal with that. If they come up with things that this man can plausibly do. Like, what I was looking out for here was... Is this going to be a cry macho kind of film where I just fundamentally don't believe this person would be chosen for this mission? Um, Because what happens in that film is that 90-something Clint Eastwood gets tapped to go to Mexico and rescue this teenage kid who's missing down there. And I'm just like, literally anyone else was not available for this mission? You you sent the 95-year-old down there to do that. Like that, It just seems like a bad idea. And I, I don't feel as if I'm being unfair to 95-year-olds by saying that. Now that said, uh, 
in this film, they at least present what he ends up doing as something that he doesn't have much of a choice about. He gets swept up in events, and he's doing the best that he can. And that is a good way to hand wave away this character's continuing involvement here. Apart from, as I saw a number of academics note, the 80-year-old professor refuses to retire from the archaeology department is actually the most realistic part of this movie. But uh, so many, many chuckles about that. But it's still, the spell broke more than once during the film as he was doing things that I just didn't believe this person could do anymore. There comes a moment at the begin- near the beginning of the sequence in 1969 where there is a chase through a ticker tape parade for the returning astronauts in New York City. And honestly, Daniel, I thought the sequence was fine. I thought that it was a very very interesting production design, and it was, it was a fun chase, and there was a lot of interesting stuff happening um, during that. It was pretty forgettable, but, uh, but there was a moment right at the beginning of that where... Indiana Jones approaches a horse, and where he would have leapt onto that horse's back in a split second, back when he was able to do things like that, what we get instead was the movie cutting around that. It cuts away, and then it cuts back, and he's just on the horse. And my reaction to that in the moment as I was watching it was, wait a minute, I have questions. You know, Harrison Ford may well have actually been on horseback at some point while shooting this film. I don't know that. We can't know that. Um, I assume some stunt people were involved as well. But I also assume that he needed a little bit of help getting onto that horse. There might have been a platform involved. There might have been multiple other people helping him. I Like, I, if I'm thinking about that as I'm watching the film, I don't want to rag on the man's age for uh, too much here. But we did the same thing with Ben Platt in Dear Evan Hansen. And we need to be fair here. This character should not be able to do these things. And writing this character doing Doing these things fundamentally breaks the reality of the movie in a way that I think is not survivable. Yeah, you know, Indy's kind of treated a little bit like a superhero. Like he doesn't really have superpowers, but he's kind of the most capable of people. You know, he's super smart. He's super, you know, athletic, agile. You know, he's clever. He's wiggy. Like he, he has all these great attributes and. I don't know. I was kind of hoping, like, when you're when you're 80 years old, maybe, like, you're just a little bit diminished. Like, if this is the swan song, I'm not really seeing how it's a swan song, right? Because, like, the character is still perfectly capable of doing things. He just might, like, bitch a little bit more about it. <laughs> well, so, fundamentally, the plot that is going on here is that uh, there are various people trying to get their hands on, on the Antikythera mechanism, which is fictionalized in this film as an invention of Archimedes, which roughly resembles the real thing that was found aboard a ship uh, many years ago, and pieces of which reside in various museums, and which has been x-rayed and studied by real-world academics, and is believed, based on that information, to be some sort of device for calculating the movements of the planet's and the moon. Fair enough. Um, This film also presupposes that it has some other magical function as well. Now, I will say right out the gate, I had absolutely no problem with this as a concept. The idea of ancient wondrous technology has always been part and parcel to what makes this series worth watching. Um, You know, in the previous uh, films, a lot of times it was religion that was providing these powers. It was the Holy Grail. It was the uh, Ark of the Covenant. Covenant. You know, these things had magical powers granted to them by God Almighty, and you can kind of just give them whatever powers you want. So if you want to say that the ancient Greeks somehow cracked the very sci-fi adjacent concept that is at work in this film i am okay with that that is that is something i'm willing to suspend disbelief on that is that is straight out of assassin's creed right there um where it ends up going thematically and narratively with that piece of technology i was not on board with uh and i think we need to get into spoilers before we can talk about that yeah i'll say i i concur i i wasn't wildly supportive of where we went with the story well, it not only fundamentally sabotages the villain's plan in a major way, but it also just it sets up this ideological 
disagreement about how we should be regarding history. And there's a very, very loose theme here about fascists as sort of toxic nostalgists pining for a, a version of history that never existed, just plundering all the shiny bits of it and saying, you know what, all of these, they built our wondrous white supremacist utopia. But that ideology was not fleshed out in any way in this film. And I and honestly, I didn't really mind that. If you're going to have fucking Nazis in your film, making them uncomplicated villains like they were in real life is fine by me. But if you're going to if you're going to make this about whether we should be regarding history in this way and whether Indiana Jones and the Nazis are two sides of the same coin plundering history for their own purposes, you need to flesh that theme out a little bit better than this movie did. And I don't think it earned the conflict that appears in the last act of this film. I didn't care about the outcome one way or the other. And what, and when we see how it plays out, I didn't really buy these characters being on the sides they were on there. I'm being pretty vague here, but we have to get into spoilers because we have to talk about this this end scene here. Yeah, I have to say the villain's uh, plan made absolutely no sense. And like, I am not a uh, an expert on the Third Reich, but I, I definitely would have come up with a better plan. Indeed. Yeah, and, and with the... Uh, well, okay, we, I think we have to get into spoilers before we can talk about the flaws in the villain's plan. So, Daniel, overall, is this movie worth seeing? Should this movie even exist? Does it belong in a museum? Did you like Phoebe Waller-Bridge in the film? Yes, I, I, I would say I would say Helena Shaw is the best character. I I, I found uh, Phoebe Phoebe uh, her performance. Phoebe, Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Very English name. Yes, uh, from Hammersmith, London, England. I I found her very charming, and I would I would be supportive of a spinoff series where she's kind of the main archaeologist. And I mean, it seems fairly obvious that's what they're setting up here. But yeah, for sure. Only if this movie does well enough to make up its $295 million budget. You know, everything costs more these days. Gas is expensive. Lumber's really expensive. Like, I'm sure that's what did it. It was uh, all the lumber they you used. You know, a movie's $200 million. Sure, everything's $200 million these days. I got new electrical in my house. It was $22,000. Everything costs a silly amount of money. So you know what? I'm fine with a movie costing $200 billion. You know, I, I say this movie has redeemable value. Like, you had Nazis in it. They were bad. They were ubiquitous. They did stuff. You know, you had a good performance from uh, Phoebe Waller-Briggs. You know, Harrison Ford is still Harrison Ford. You know, he's he's still capable of being witty and charming and roguish. So, yeah, fine. It, it, this movie could be entertaining, an entertaining summer flick. I think this franchise deserves better than to be an entertaining summer flick. I dare say Spielberg set the standard a bit higher than that. You turn on any random 10 minutes in Raiders of the Lost Ark, you will not be able to look away. Every scene of that film is so precisely and deliberately directed. And it's not to say this movie was not competently made. James Mangold can direct an action movie competently. There were a number of pretty entertaining chase sequences in this movie, but... I'm sorry, Pretty Entertaining just doesn't cut it for me with Indiana Jones. You do not create at least two, possibly three, depending on who you ask, all-timer best action movies ever made, best action-adventure films ever made, and follow it up with this. This is just an unremarkable chase movie. It it has it has a fair few things in common with the lesser parts of the Fast and Furious franchise, which you also compared it to as a uh, as a negative because any sort of car chase is going to be compared to that at this point. Well, compared negatively to it, like 
Fast, the Fast series has owned car chases. Like anything else, just pales in comparison. Well, I'll tell you the moment where I where I found myself thinking of Fast and Furious. I was thinking of Furious Seven, the one that was made and released after Paul Walker passed away off screen, and they were forced to re to rewrite and use CGI and stand-ins in the form of Walker's real life brothers to somehow cobble together an ending for this character. And you may recall what I said about that film at the time was it was as good as could reasonably be expected. But I dare say it actually was even better than that because the stunt work involving Walker's character in that movie was so aloof the camera was so far away from his face he was moving around so much that whenever deepfake Harrison Ford in this film was doing stunts in 1944 I was kind of on board I just thought I was watching another just another act of those previous Indiana Jones movies the train sequence was fine but it also felt like a tour, like a lesser tour of a previous movie. And in that sense, it reminded me of Fast X, the latest Fast and Furious film, which begins with an opening five-minute sequence where we go back, we flash back to the events of Fast Five, the best one in the franchise, where they're dragging those safes around Rio, and it turns out that Jason Momoa's villain character was there the whole time. And I was just bored and waiting for it to be over. That is ultimately how i felt even as i was thinking to myself okay how much do i believe that this cgi character that i know is fake and that every single person seeing this movie knows is fake how much am i how much am i allowing myself to pretend that this is real for the duration of this can i shut down my brain or at best can i can i respect this as a legitimate artistic expression within the medium of animation because it wouldn't bother me this much if i were watching spider-man across the spider-verse and it looked this way if you're going to make your characters look hyper real but also not there is a medium for that, and it's called animation. If you want to have characters voice uh, voice and appear as themselves when they are too old to do it in live action, you could do that with animation. And maybe this would have worked better as an animated film. Maybe this would have worked better with a voice impersonator doing their best impression of Harrison Ford for that. Maybe it would have worked better with fucking Alden Ehrenreich coming back to play young Indiana Jones. I mean, any version of this which created a consistent and perceptible reality that I was not distracted by the filmmaking for would have worked better than this and it was such a fundamental failure that it hung over the rest of the movie for me I think Indiana Jones would be really disappointing when he realized just how many Nazis ended up working for the US government after the war yeah I think it'd be disappointing and that, uh, and that they that they made a big comeback you, you trash your fascism fascism is very interesting to learn about you know, I, I would recommend you actually, you know, take the subject seriously. All right. Well, in the interest of taking this film seriously, let's go ahead and jump into spoilers here. But Daniel, I have to say, ultimately, I think people should give this one a miss. I picked this movie out of the various available blockbusters for us to review because it was the one I was most curious about and thought we would have the most to say about. But dude, I'm going to be going to see Mission Impossible, which we'll probably not have a ton to say about, and I'm expecting to have a much better time at the movies with that particular old man uh, revisiting one of his older roles. Yeah, but Tom Cruise is Tom Cruise is special. We Tom know Cruise this. will never die until finally they just you know shoot him into space and he doesn't come back. All right, well from here on out, spoilers for Harrison Ford and the dial. <laughs> No, you're right, you're right. All right, here we go. From here on out, spoilers for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. So... We have a Donnie Darko situation here. There's a portal in the sky, and Archimedes, when he invented this time travel device, it was a means of finding these naturally occurring portals in time. Uh, and that's 
what the Nazis think is going on. That's the plan. They want to travel back to a particular moment 30 years ago. In 1939, after Hitler's been in power for a, for a decade plus and has just invaded Poland, Jürgen Voller's plan is to go back and assassinate the Führer so that hopefully he will not do all of the various blunders that resulted in the Germans losing that war. Daniel, what do you, as somewhat an expert on this period in history, I dare say, what do you think of this plan? This plan makes no goddamn sense. So here, here's, here's the problem with that plan. Vor kills Hitler. Let's just say he 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 ambushes him at the V two rocket uh, demonstration. How many seconds is he still alive after doing? That? Maybe a dozen. I don't know. Like it makes no sense because say the Fuhrer is 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 murdered, right? Well, Goring is probably going to take charge of Nazi Germany or possibly oh Goebbels. Like it, there's no way they're going to say, oh, it's you killed one of the other military elites who were on board with Hitler's agenda and were helping him implement it. Absolutely. Yeah. And so Flores plan instantly makes no sense. The play was if they were really going to do this, I, I have a, I have my own workshop uh, idea of what uh, should have happened. But I'll, let me, let me tell you like if the, if we're going to stick with the whole assassinate the fear plan, here's the play. You go and you kill Hitler before the Night of Long Knives. And the reason why you do that is because that's when Hitler killed Rom. And Rom was really the guy who challenged Hitler, not only from a you know, uh, leadership aspect, for, but from an ideological aspect. Because Rom ran the SA, which was the got subsumed by the SS. But Rom had his own private military, paramilitary force. That was instrumental in early Nazi uh, Nazi rise to power, but Rom, these were the brown shirts, the ones that sort of helped with the right wing acts of terror, right? Bring but, the Nazis to power. but Rom was more on the left wing side of the Nazi party, so the play would have been to kill Hitler before the Night of Long Knives when Rom is assassinated, and then ally with Rom, and then lead a different Nazi Germany. That would have been the play. One which ends up allying with the Soviet Union and chopping up Europe because they're ideologically aligned. That would It's a very interesting alternate history that you propose here, Daniel, but I dare say there's an easier plan for Jürgen Wohler to, to perform here. One, he travels back in time with his foreknowledge of the future, and he gives Nazi Germany the atomic bomb. They win the war. That's it. That would <laughs> make more sense, in power, too. But they win the war. Here's what I wanted to have happen. Because, like, the whole, like, Nazi thing, like, Nazis as being just comic, you know, villains. I'm bored with that. I'm too much of a history nerd to, to buy into that. Here's what I wanted to happen. Voller's like, I want to go back in time to see my mother, who I never really got to know. And then Indiana Jones would have been like, Nazis don't get to have mothers. <laughs> and that would have been, like, that would have entertained me, right? Like, Voller's plan was like, I just want to go see my mom. Fundamentally, if you're going to introduce a time travel device and give it just this precise and limited form of power, it is just such an unimaginative use of time travel. If you have the ability to go back in time, you could so drastically change the future by making any one of a dozen changes. And this guy wants to go back and kill Hitler? It's a cliche. But at the same time... What ends up happening is it turns out Archimedes designed that thing so that it could only do one thing, bring reinforcements from the future back to the siege of Syracuse to help them win the win the battle. We didn't even know who was on either side of it. Like, what was even going on in the siege of Syracuse? They don't explain it all that much. Like, there are Romans there and there are ancient Greeks fighting there and there's a bunch of shit going on there. But like, 
who's fighting who? What's the outcome of this battle? Why do we even care? I'm pretty sure the Romans win. Yeah, I don't understand why we're meant to care about this battle apart from, and I think this is what the movie is arguing here, well, it's pretty fucking cool to see a uh, to see a plane from the 1960s flying around over an ancient battle. And in the movie's defense, it is pretty fucking cool seeing a plane from the 1960s flying around shooting machine guns at a at an ancient sea battle uh, in in the Mediterranean. But it just doesn't amount to much of anything. I don't care what's happening back then. And when the, when the question of whether Indiana Jones with a bullet in his shoulder wants to stay there in the past. Really for no reason at all. Like, if he said, I'm dead, there's no point in bringing me back, that'd be fine. But he never said that. He said, I want to stay here because I get to be a part of history. Like, the, like Harrison Ford attempted to sell the hell out of that, of just like, I'm witnessing history. I believed him more when he was talking about what he would do with time travel himself. That was the one moment of true imagination that the movie had about time travel. Agreed. It was not about seeing history or romanticizing history. It was about him saving his son's life and telling him that if he goes to Vietnam, he's going to die. And I will say, I will give the movie credit for its restraint insofar as they didn't come up with some ham-fisted way for Shia LaBeouf to pop in for a cameo at the end of this movie and somehow be alive at the end. Maybe oh. you know, Helena Shaw slipped a note to Archimedes and was like, hold on to this for the next 2,000 years and let this guy know not to go to Vietnam. And Archimedes is like, what's Vietnam? But it works, because movie. No, that doesn't happen. Shia LaBeouf remains blissfully out of this movie, uh, doing whatever Shia LaBeouf does. These How days. did Continental shift? knock them back, not just location-wise, but thousands of years before <laughs> where they it thought is, they were going to It go. is not at all clear to me whether Indy was correct about that or not, or whether the movie's no, presenting No, the, the, the movie presenting them as being correct. I, I don't I don't agree with that. I think the movie presented it as being an irrelevant red herring because he attempts to dissuade the Nazis from going through the portal because he thinks that they're wrong and they could end up anywhere. But what he ends up concluding once they are there is that Archimedes built the device specifically to bring people from the future to that specific point in time, which means that which I took to mean that the continental drift thing had nothing to do with it. Okay, Archimedes built enough. the machine correctly to do the specific thing that he wanted it to be done, which was locate a portal that would take people from the future back to this precise moment in time. So it just feels like such a limited and ridiculous device. Like, how am I meant to admire this guy for inventing, uh, I, I guess, a portal for one really, really dumb specific purpose? And, like, what did they accomplish by being there? I guess they, they flew overhead and the Nazis you know, decimated the fleet, well, more than decimated the fleet with their machine gun. But it's not like Indiana Jones made that happen. It's not like Helena Shaw made that happen. It happened basically by accident. What would you, you think of Teddy? Uh, Teddy, I had to look back at the cast list to uh, even remember who it was. Teddy's the kid, right? Yes, Teddy's the kid. Uh, you know, he was a kid. You think he wins an Oscar in like 20 years, 30 years? I think that this movie had a kid to tag along because that makes the movie appeal to kids. I don't really have much more to say about it than that. Uh, I've seen that work better than this. Uh, That introduced us to a young Justice Smith in Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. It was one of the only parts of that movie that actually worked for me. But uh, this kid was was unmemorable to me. He was just he was just kind of there. Uh, the the whole the whole like, time travel thing is just just really stuck. Like I couldn't enjoy the schlubby Archimedes and, and the final set piece because I was just so perplexed by that was the choice the movie went with was 
because time travel has, you know, you're always opening a can of worms in time travel. So there'd be two Volers in 1939, <laughs> one of which has just killed Hitler, <laughs> yeah. uh, who apparently has secret knowledge. Did he have books or something? Like, how was he going to convince the, the Third Reich brass that he actually was from the future? Well, that's why I like the idea of him building an atomic bomb, because that's at least a practical skill that he can I guess. If he can persuade them, they're at least aware of the fit. Like, they're trying to do it themselves as well. But like, that takes like, time. That's going to take time. And you know, the Nazis aren't going to give him time to figure that out. They're going to shoot him. Yeah, probably. Uh, or they'll be like, hmm, well, I don't know. That could that could be the one thing. He could prove that he's from the future by dragging out his younger self as the uh, as the evidence of that. But I don't know. If you're in charge of Nazi Germany and all of a sudden an older version of somebody within your ranks shows up to tell you that you're that if you stay on the path you're currently on, it's going you're going to lose the war. You probably just execute the younger version and watch the second one disappear, right? Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's... It's like a blooper, right? <laughs> yeah. Like let's let's just close that loop immediately. We're not gonna we're not I don't want to talk about time travel. God bless you, Bruce Willis. That was the right answer as it turned out. Uh, I I and like Archimedes like was so lame and like uh, the the whole um journey into, you know, like the, the race to get to the Archimedes to, you know, the uh, the device. Yeah. Here here's the problem with that. The kid was handcuffed to the big fella. How'd they scale the wall? They just uh, off screen, but like <laughs> these things that kept happening. Like he's very strong. I don't know. Yeah, it, it did make a lot of sense, and the movie wasn't too keen to explain any of that. But it, you know, they did map travel a few times. We saw a little red line move around. Yeah, the, uh, saw the like red saw line. Um, even though airplanes could gradually travel farther in the 1960s, not like you know they still had to stop for refueling and all that. But, uh, but well, yeah, direct flights, direct flights are hard to find. Daniel, I I don't think there's any version of this where I watch this movie again. That's fundamentally what I have to say. Like, I will go back and watch probably all three of the originals, although Temple of Doom is, uh, is definitely not my favorite. It's still, like, I've seen it a couple of times. It's worth watching. Raiders and Last Crusade I've seen many times. I will probably revisit those movies again. I don't really see the point in ever watching this again. I, I agree. It's just uh, such a bizarre exercise that failed so hard at what it achieved, even though it had a couple of mildly interesting set pieces in it that is just not enough raiders is an all-time classic like the the ending is is fantastic uh this movie was lame <laughs> just for yeah john reese davies was in this film that's literally all i have to say he shows up as a cab driver we, we we get a little epilogue for that character he's in new york he's there with his family he's happy good for him i am and i supposed to know who that is uh, John Rhys Davies played Gimli in the Lord of the Rings films. That might be where you recognized him from. But Sala uh, was a character in the. Uh, I believe he was involved in both Raiders of the Lost Ark and Last Crusade. Yeah, I mean, I recognize him. I just didn't re- remember where the character was from. Yep, previous friend character, like like what you got in this movie, which is that they're old friends and they went on adventures together. That's pretty much all you need. To what, was that the same with Basil? Uh, Toby Jones, uh, or, or no? Now, that's the interesting thing. Basil is a new character who's introduced as a character who appears in 1944 and then goes crazy with his obsession for the Dial of Destiny and then dies uh, before the present day of this film. So he was just there to set up Phoebe Waller Bridges' character, but he was not a character that previously existed in this franchise. Likewise, uh, Reynaldo, played by Antonio Banderas, is in this film. He's the guy on the boat where they go diving in Greece. Daniel, did you think you'd ever refer to Antonio Banderas as he plays the guy on the boat? Like, do we call this a cameo? He's literally the third build actor in this film. It's a cameo. It's 100% a cameo. You did not even realize it was him no. until you pointed it out, right? Correct. Yeah. I have no idea. 
How did they not get the bangs from going up so quickly? He's got a method, Daniel. But the method, they can follow it mostly the doesn't give you the bends. Mostly. All right, that's about all I got, dude. Uh, there were eels. The eels were snake-like, I guess. The eels missed all the bikes. I was kind of hoping somebody would get bit by an eel. I don't know. There came a moment where they were surrounded by bugs as well. The bugs didn't do anything. Like They were just kind of ambiance. Yeah, there there are centipedes, and I was like, "Oh, neat centipedes!" And then nothing happened. I was like, "Oh, that's a bummer." I don't know, dude. Like, I I feel like environmental depictions like those that we see. I mean, Harrison Ford looking at the battle, which is just so full full of such obvious and rampant fakery. I I don't know. I saw I saw the uh, I saw the sh- uh, former show or I saw a former staff writer for Lost, uh, Javier Grio Markswatch, who uh, who I follow on Twitter, commented that movies did not look as bad as they do now until we developed the technology to make everything look realistic, which is I, I don't know. I think filmmakers had to work around their limitations before, and now they can just show you anything and everything, and as a result, they have no restraint. And they work people to death to create these hyper-realistic locations where just absolute nonsense is happening. And I find myself completely disconnected from it. So, yeah, was that final battle cool? No. Yeah, but cool was pretty much all it was. Like, there there was just nothing to it. I didn't care about the outcome of it at all. And fundamentally, that's a problem. The only cool part about it was uh, them, you know, firing arrows and... uh... Uh, spear weapons at the planes. Like, that yeah, was but you know who did that cool. better already? James Cameron in the first Avatar movie. Yeah, but James Cameron does ever you can't you can't hold people to the James Cameron, you know. Uh, I can and I will. Welcome to the cult of Big Jim. He's an expert in submersibles and everything else, Daniel. <laughs> they don't build people like David, uh, not David Cameron, by James Cameron anymore. Like he, they don't build people like David Cameron either. Actually, no, they build a, gr- a great many people like David. Cameron. Yeah, every, everyone from Eaton is built like. David Cameron. All right. Well, Daniel, any final thoughts about the film? You know, sometimes you don't go out with a bang, you go out with a whimper, and this is more of a whimper than a bang, but I didn't hate it. I, I was mildly entertained the whole time. I just didn't I didn't think it was very good, and that's not that's not to deride the actors or the effort that they put in. It's just I'm kind of with you. I'm so sick of CGI at this point. Like, I just want people to do real scenes with real people and real effort. I, the, all the, like, Avatar is different, and I put that on a different pedestal, but all the CGI... Well, Avatar is different because he spent a decade plus making every shot of that movie perfect. Well, right, right, but my, my point is, the, the point I'm trying to make is, everything is so fake. Everything is now Mid-Journey or uh, ChatGPT. It's just... I don't know, you strip away the passion from art when you got left. I don't know. I mean, when I think of what to compare this to, if I'm, if I'm looking for the more real and viscerally satisfying version of this battle that we saw at the end, it was Athena that we saw last year, which was a battle sequence, much more small scale, much more grounded in reality, obviously depicting a different sort of reality from one that's currently playing out in... in I was going to say, I was going to say, it's happening again. But it was a reality that had to be conceived with real pyrotechnics, real extras, real vehicles, and we just don't see that as much anymore. We see that with George Miller, but we don't see that with James Mangold, and we don't see that with most filmmakers because they just, either they can't be bothered or the studios can't be bothered, and it's a real shame. You do anything to the French people and they riot, so it's it's just what they do. All right. Well, if you have any feedback on our discussion of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com. Thank you for tuning in at filmwonk.net and have a good night. (laughs) 